Uh, it's, uh, it's my privilege today to welcome and to introduce Foreign Minister Mitov. Um, I have had the pleasure of meeting lots of senior government officials through the years, but my lunch with Minister Mitov, gosh, about half a year ago was the most unusual I'd ever had because it was, we spent our time talking about the history of Western civilization. I hadn't expected that. You know, I had expected it to be a more narrow cast sort of a discussion and about the challenges. Good, goodness knows that Bulgaria's had some real challenges these last two to three years. He's been in the middle of it. He's been right in the center of most of it. Um, but instead, we talked about the challenge facing Western civilization. And I thought that was remarkably fresh, remarkably interesting, and far more timely than I had ever anticipated. And I think we're seeing this question played out very unevenly in front of us every day. Certainly, the drama in uh, Brussels this weekend was a big debate about the European construction and about the direction of Western civilization in Europe. Certainly the great, you have to call it uh, both a civil war and an insurgency and a surrogate war in Ukraine is about this question. And of course, the foreign minister has had uh, uh, of these last years, he's been living in the middle of it trying to understand what does this mean for Bulgaria and how does Bulgaria succeed and survive? I, can, I know some of the answers to that. We're part of it. It's NATO. You know, we have to be part of it, but we also have to be wise about what Bulgaria's understanding is of this challenge it faces. And we, so we need to spend some time listening to that, and we're going to have an opportunity to do that today. Um, the foreign minister is... Um, uh, he knows America, and we're grateful for that as well. He worked of all, he worked for the National Democratic Institute in Iraq, helping to build civil society in Iraq. It gives you just an insight into the content of his character. You're going to enjoy this very much, and we're all going to learn from it. So could I ask you with your applause to please welcome and thank the Foreign Minister of Bulgaria, Daniel Mitov. Well, John, thank you very much for the wonderful introduction. Uh, I'll have to try and live up to it and live up to the challenge. Um, and would like to express uh, first my, uh, my appreciation of being here among people who, uh, who are not only interested in, in foreign policy affairs, but also trying to find solutions and trying to find the ways how we can, we can tackle the, uh, the, the challenges we have we have today and this 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 very dynamic uh, geopolitical situation which we haven't faced for a while um, it is it is a uh, it is a particular uh, pleasure as well because it's always great to to come back here uh, to to DC and talk uh, talk with with like-minded people people who uh, who understand uh, what's going on, and try to find uh, to find common solution to the to the challenges I already mentioned. Um, I have the uh, the habit recently to to start uh, when I have to speak uh, to to start with the following 
that I'm, um, some, some time ago I, I asked a friend of mine how to approach this type of events, and he said, when it comes to the speeches, and he said, use the miniskirt tactic. And when he saw my uh, stunned face, uh, then he explained, short enough in, in order to cover the essentials, uh, long enough in order to cover the essentials, and short enough to, to uh, keep the attention of everyone. Uh, and I'm particularly happy to see NDI friends here. I just, <laughs> uh, I just uh, saw uh, Rob. Um, anyway, so let me, as a way of setting the scene, sketch out three important elements of what is happening today. Uh, we are living in, a peculiar, in peculiar times. We spent over decades discussing the risks of globalization and when they are materializing more and more, uh, we are beset by, uh, by inaction. Um, actually, um, in the last, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, there was this notion among us that uh, history has already, uh, already stopped. Liberal democracy will prevail little by little and we are, uh, we are bound to, uh, to, to see how uh, autocratic uh, regimes will, will um, uh, little by little transform into, into something different, something close to, uh, to what has proven to be um, an efficient um, social architecture. Um, and we stopped making history. And when you stop doing that, someone else is going to make it for you. So that is what is happening to us today. Um, when risks are expanding, we need to take a brave step forward, meet the challenges we talked about for so long. And globalization and its effects have come out of the academic books and have been for a while in our lives. We need to act with greater urgency these days. Another key point is to appreciate fully that globalization has not turned out to be a one-way street for the West, reaping solely benefits, uh, continuing to shape the rules of the system, etc. Uh, we need to be more aware and better at addressing the consequences of this question globalization. Rise of the other players, greater general uncertainty, risk of fracturing of alliances, social challenges in our nation states as a result of geoeconomic displacement. Many people have spent the last few years predicting the coming apart of the transatlantic alliance. Well, they have been proven wrong, fortunately. Europe and the US have reached similar conclusions in the wake of the global crisis and have renewed commitment to the transatlantic bond. Europe has taken a while, but realized that only via further integration can it continue to be the factor in the years to come. The US, on the other hand, has recommitted itself to that bond, realizing that weakness at the core of the liberal international system will, will have dire consequences. In my brief introductory notes, I will touch on only a few of the challenges facing both Europe and the US. Um, first, let me focus on persistent and expanding terrorist threat. The geographical expansion of the terrorist threat is a major worry. Uh, the same holds for the growing variety of terrorist acts, sole perpetrators who simply go after people in public spaces or at work. The cultural dimensions in the recruitment of the, of the so-called foreign fighters are also an increasing concern. 
While terrorism ebbs and flows, uh, it is rising in scope and complexity, limiting space for terrorist uh, autarchies is essential, and uh, that is why the fight against ISIS is of such uh, major importance. International interventions also need to remain a viable option in the areas where terrorism is expanding. We all know they are politically difficult, legally uh, a challenge, costly, etc., but this has to remain on the table. We also need to take a deeper look at European society to figure out why people continue to choose ISIS instead of the legitimate channels of protest and change. The ISIS phenomenon also creates, creates challenges related to refugee inflows to Europe and displacement of large masses of people. The latter can create conditions for further destabilization of other countries in the Middle region. Then I'd like to take a few minutes and to, to focus on uh, the challenges we, we are facing, um, which are coming from, from the Russian Federation and the recent event, events uh, related to, to that. Russian behavior is currently a potent threat to our security and values. Uh, Crimean annexation is unacceptable, illegitimate, criminal, we called it. Uh, so many things, but they all lead to the same point. This, this is something that cannot happen in 21st century. Neither is acceptable the intervention in eastern Ukraine and the disruption of its, of its transformation into a better functioning democracy and market economy. Such behavior is a gross and unacceptable violation of the values at the core of the modern transatlantic order and this is not an exaggeration, as many insist these days. If this is not countered, the temptation to revisit long-settled political issues will only grow. I realize that sometimes responding to the obvious is the hardest. One has to put aside the comfort of habit, routine, and inertia, even hope that things could have been so much different. So sanctions against Russia m must remain despite all their real and imagined shortcomings. Here I would like to extend a little bit uh, my narrative because I believe we are facing a long-standing challenge which has its roots, consequences, and even ideological dimensions. And this is actually what we, what we talked about on that, on that lunch mentioned earlier. First, we have to outline that uh, and, and to say that the perception of, of the European Union is much deeper historically than we tend to think uh, in this very moment. When we say European Union, we always think treaties and complicated bureaucracy. Uh, the truth is that the foundations of this juridical on first glance community is another um, centuries-long existing society, which is not based on any pacts, but on deeply rooted cohabitation. This European society exists long before even the creation of the nation states. Second, after the end of the World War II, Europe finally resolved its dichotomy between the European Atlanticism and the European continentalism. 
This, this dichotomy has existed in, in Europe for, for centuries, and it was only resolved after the, the end of the Second World War, when the natural space for, for trade and, and human contacts of, of that part of Europe that was not under the, the, the communism um, was, was, was west, was the transatlantic dimension. Turns out that even if Europe and America could have looked until that, uh, that moment as two separate worlds, they cannot think each other as detached. Uh, they have rediscovered their common past and roots. And uh, for the Europeans, North America begins, after the Second World War, begins to be seen as the continuation of Europe somehow. Especially after the beginning of the Cold War, the natural expansion of the European space, as we mentioned, is not, uh, which is not under the Soviet control, goes over the Atlantic. In the meantime, the doctrine of President Truman states that the US needs to support and protect the free nations in Europe against armed minorities and external pressure. One cannot help but draw parallels related to our reality of today. We somehow are in a very, very similar situation. On the other hand, we see attempts for revival of the continentalist idea in the Kremlin's contem contemporary policies. Uh, and here I have to make a, a short diversion and say, when I will speak about, uh, about Russia, I will speak about Kremlin, because that is where the policies of today are shaped. We all have good feelings towards the Russian people. We all want uh, to trade, uh, to, to have good relations with, with the Russian nation. We all want uh, to see our democratic world and Russia closer. And we have done all the efforts after the fall of the Berlin Wall in order to achieve that. We have created all the mechanisms and opened all the possible doors in, in order to, to bring each other closer. In both in, in the European Union dimension, in NATO dimension, in the World Trade Organization, you name it. Uh, those contemporary policies which, which Kremlin adopts right now and they lead, as I mentioned, to the revival of the continentalist idea existing in Europe way back. And those are usually articulated through new readings of the Eurasianist ideology aiming at the creation of a multipolar world. The main difference between the Euro-Atlantic idea and the Eurasian one is that Europe has never been an empire of only one of its ethnic components. Europe has been always a community, but has never been dominated by one ethnic component. Actually, um, before the creation of the nation states, whether you're German, whether you're French or, or Italian, that really didn't matter. Uh, Europe was an alive um, organism, which was, which was interacting. The, the different ethnic components were interacting with each other and had um, different things in, in, in common. Uh, also, 
the, the, the Eurasian idea has built itself as a projection of only one power center. As opposite, the Eurasian historical space is imperial space of one nation and coincides with the territories of the former Russian and Soviet empires. Europe has always developed without the domination of one nation, even if the attempts for that have existed with the time. The Europeans had similar value system and social stratification. If you look back in the history, you can see that in most of the, uh, of the European, um, European states or kingdoms, whatever we call them, not nation states, but, but uh, kingdoms, um, the social stratification was more or less the same. Uh, throughout the centuries, there's no common Eurasian history, culture, or civilization created. Um, the only attempt for the creation of such community of common perceptions and value system in, in the Eurasian space was done by the Bolsheviks. And we all know how that experiment crashed and burned historically. Europe is a natural continuation. On the other hand, Europe is a natural continuation of something that has always existed. While Eurasia historically, until nowadays, is artificially fed idea. Even today's Eurasian Union has to be looked through these lenses. And needs to be looked as a community of countries united by the sole idea to resist freedom, democracy, human rights, rule of law, etc. Everything on which our civilization is founded. The main ideological differences between the Euro-Atlantic world and what Kremlin promotes as a Eurasian idea today could be more or less captured in the following. For Kremlin, the foundations of a great society is the heavy and dominating state. For us, the basis of a powerful society is the individual and the family. That is the nucleus. The place for formation of solidarity is the city. In, in, in the Euro-Atlantic uh, sense. The municipality, the local community, that's where the common will is formed. The individuals, the local communities, their initiative form a society which the state is called to safeguard. For Kremlin, it's exactly the opposite. It's the verticalization, top-down philosophy of what is important for the, for the state and for the, for the community. From the rhetoric of the Kremlin officials, we can also detect the idea for the uniqueness of the Russian nation. It's somehow messianic mission, the, the Russian Renaissance after the post-Cold War humiliation. Um, even if we try to avoid it, as we mentioned, even if we try to create all the mechanisms of, of uh, reconciliation and, and um, bringing closeness, Obviously, the, the dissolution of the Soviet Union was, was lived as a humiliation. And what is happening right now um, is the rebirth of mystical nationalistic ideologies which, which lead to, uh, to this perception for a messianic mission for, uh, which feeds the Russian Renaissance somehow. 
Euro Atlantic societies rely that rely on the fact that the faithful people, the people of faith, will realize their religious ethos individually and in interaction with one another in the, in the community, in the polis. Kremlin counts exactly on the opposite, that the Russian revival as superpower will go through the mobilization of the Orthodox Church as an institution guided by the state. The church has assumed somehow the role of something like a spiritual police, if you will, or sacred nucleus of the Russian ideology, something that, that, has, that has the power to, to shape, through the authorization of the state, to shape the moral standards. The most striking difference, though, related to the perception of power, the most striking difference between the perceptions in, uh, in the Euro-Atlantic world and the Eurasian concepts in this case are related to, the, to how we perceive power as such. For Kremlin, the power which can assure the nation's glory is inseparable from the territory, the increasing military capabilities, and most important here, the confrontation. The latter assures the maintenance of fear outside the borders assures the maintenance of a pole and the creation of a multipolar world perception, assures also the idea that only in that way the empire could be kept whole and united. In the past, the main objects for confrontation were, was the, the main object for confrontation was the Romano-Germanic Europe, let's put it this way, Western part of, of Europe, the Catholic Protestant Europe. Now, it is the United States. That is, that is what, what is perceived in Kremlin as the, uh, as the core of, of, of evil. What, and, and Europe somehow is a victim of, of what comes from the US. So the messianic mission is to save Europe somehow. That is, that is what's going on. Uh, in my uh, modest estimate. Breaking the transatlantic bond, though, becomes the most important strategic goal. And everything is, is aimed at that. Also, of course, a lot of effort is put into trying to disunite the European Union. Um, the notion is that the European Union is an unsuccessful project, something that has not united itself to the extent which is needed in order to take common, quick decisions, to, to be able to react on, on global, uh, global issues fast and according to, according to the values which the same European Union promotes. And we can, see, we can see daily proofs for that. Uh, also, I am absolutely sure that liberal democracy is viewed from, Clem, uh, from Kremlin as a concept, a social architecture, a construct which is doomed to fail historically. Um, it is seen, liberal democracy is seen as, um, as something weak, which will 
crumble and fall apart under the weight of his own weaknesses, bureaucracy, moral relativity, slowliness, indecisiveness, too much freedom and openness which open doors for, for everything that, that goes, goes into it. So those, those notions are seen as, as problematic on, on the part of the Eurasian ideological framework and, and are used against us somehow. Here, of course, uh, we, we need to, to say the following. For us, it's uh, extremely crucial and important to keep the transatlantic bond alive in any possible manner. Not only alive, but strong, continue strengthening it, and speak in one voice. Speak as a union. Uh, this situation gives us also opportunities to wake up and realize what what the transatlantic union is and what we need to defend today. Defending our freedom is the most important thing that we can, we can think of. But with that are coming uh, many, many other things. Many have taken a stab at NATO, for example, and its supposed decline. Some have even enjoined doing so. But the Alliance has made its smooth transition into the 21st century, despite many remaining issues. And I'm particularly pleased to see the creation of a real soft and hard infrastructure of the collective defense provisions. NATO's current work along the eastern and southeastern flanks is very much supported by us, and we are fully committed to taking this further. The demonstration that Article 5 of the Washington Treaty is alive and we are ready to defend each other is crucial for us, especially the countries on the eastern flank of NATO. A few words about economy. Uh, strong West, able to defend its values and protect the liberal international order, fundamentally requires vibrant and successful economies on both sides of the Atlantic. Contrary to the expectations of many, globalization has not been a one-way street going in West's favor. As a result, we face quite a few significant challenges, a geoeconomic shift to the East, a need to change our economic models to adjust to the 21st century, create a better balance between enterprise and inequality, prepare our citizens for the economy of the future, find drivers of growth in key 21st century sectors, IT innovation, bio and nanotechnologies, etc. We have much to note. The, the US is back to solid growth, creating jobs, high value jobs, creating as ever new innovative products. Europe is also growing again after some reform, hesitation and uncertainty. Economic integration of the continent is deepening. Um, look at the new Eurozone governance system, uh, the new growth funds under the so-called Juncker Fund, etc. Uh, no doubt there is a need for much more. But creating a transatlantic common market is crucial. And it will further embodiment of the transatlantic link as well as a source of much needed economic growth. Bulgaria is very supportive of this process. We have quite an active communication policy on the benefits of TTIP and what, and, and um, 
the fact that it will continue as negotiations and, and, and process. Here we have to say probably a lot of you are, are curious of uh, how, do we, how do we see the crisis in, in, in Greece and, and the, the deal reached there. Um, one thing I can say, first, Greece is our immediate neighbor and we don't want anything, any turmoils there and we don't wish anything uh, um, bad or, or problematic for the Greek people. The truth is though, is that what we want and what the, the whole Eurozone wants from Greece is to stop accumulating debt. The debt that Greece has until now, it is clear, and we have to deal with it together. But the, the accumulation of new debts and refusal to, to reform in order to, to achieve that is the problem of the, of the Eurozone. And, and all the, the creditors. I, and I will give example with Bulgaria. In 1997, we were completely and utterly broke. The, the country, Bulgaria, was, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, it was, I mean, the, we had hyperinflation and it was something like 700% at the time. Huge. We were broke. There was nothing. Our debt was 112% of our GDP. In the frame of a little bit more than a decade, we had to pay 47, 42% sorry, of our state budget for covering the debt plus the interests. 42% of the, of the state budget. Austerity, discipline, fiscal discipline, surpluses, no deficits. And we did it. It's very often referred to us as the poorest country in the European Union, which I think it's a little bit unfair because we had to go through that not that so long time ago. So now we are growing. Now we have a little growth, but we are growing. Before the crisis, we were growing even with, with higher uh, steps. But it is what it is. Now we are fiscally stable. Now we are following the rules and the regulations which we all have adopted in the framework of, of the European Union and the Eurozone. And that's how it needs to be. So we, we all need to, to comply with that. A little, a little bit about the energy, the energy field, which for us is another huge challenge. This is a particular, uh, it is of particular importance for Bulgaria and other countries in, in Europe, and there are a few processes which, taken together, essentially amount to a quiet revolution. Shale gas extraction, energy transportation advances, uh, greater interconnectivity, growth of renewables, more investment in energy efficiency. These are creating a dramatic change already causing important shifts in Europe. The EU is making progress on its energy union and those most committed to this idea are actively complementing EU level and national level measures and policies. The current Bulgarian government has picked up the speed of energy reforms. Uh, there are now tenders of gas exploration in the Black Sea, long ignored interconnectivity projects with neighboring countries, those are implemented as a matter of priority. 
there are more funds for energy efficiency projects, etc. Taken together, all these policies and measures will create a new reality in Europe and one in which monopolistic actors will not be able to use energy as a political weapon and instrument of dependence. Here, we are particularly grateful to, uh, to the role which, which the uh, US administration plays uh, and, and for the fact that there's a special envoy on energy, Amos Hochstein, a lot of you, a lot of you know him, um, who has been with us and with the whole European Union and the Commission in order to try and form together the future energy union of the European Union, the future map, the future energy map of the European Union, which depends on us. It doesn't depend on anyone else. This is what I'm trying to convey as a message every single time we are gathering in the format of the European Council. Uh, we have to stop being gullible when it comes to energy projects coming from Gazprom. In the minute in which something has been said there, there is at least one country that jumps and starts signing MOUs, which we know what it means. It means, again, a division inside the European environment. We need to realize that we are together in this, and we are the ones who will decide where gas will enter Europe from. We are a customer, and gas is a utility. It is, it is something that we, we buy as, as, as in the market, and we cannot allow that to be used against us for divisive purposes or as a, as a political weapon for creating political influence in, in certain countries. That is, that is basically what, what I wanted to, to say, and I'm absolutely sure uh, that the best part of this meeting still lies still ahead of us, uh, the Q&A bits, and we will have time to expand on some of these issues and talk about others. Once again, many thanks for this wonderful opportunity to present some thoughts today, and I look, I'm really looking forward to your comments and questions. Thank you very much for the attention. Thank you, Mr. Minister, for those comprehensive remarks. Good morning, everyone. My name is Heather Conley. I'm Senior Vice President here for Europe. And I have to tell you, Mr. Minister, from this side of the Atlantic, I'm not sure I am as optimistic as you are on the European construction project. So I thought what we do is I warm the minister up a little bit with a few questions and then open the floor uh, for discussion. Watching the weekend events, as Dr. Henry alluded to, and watching where we almost had a Grexit. Greece, uh, economically, is, I think, teetering on the brink of, of collapse. We hope Tomorrow, the Greek Parliament uh, will vote on measures, unclear whether other Eurozone parliaments will agree. This is a profound shaking mm -hmm. of the greatest project, certainly, I think, for US foreign policy. It can't look that rosy from Sofia, can it? <laughs> well, I, I hope I didn't uh, give the sensation that it's uh, too rosy, but uh, of course, my, my uh, hope and our hope 
is that uh, in the end the reason will, will prevail um, and whatever happens uh, it will it will leave Greece inside the Eurozone. Um, it is sure that the other countries of the Eurozone are strong enough and economically stable enough in order to keep the Eurozone uh, stable and with enough trust in it. Um, it is clear that the Eurozone after a little bit of shaking will stabilize. But what we are worried about is Greece itself. Uh, we don't want to see social turmoil, we don't want to see problems there. Um, and as I mentioned, as immediate neighbor, that concerns us, not, in, not that much in economic terms, because uh, whatever we needed to do in order to uh, prevent huge impact on our economy, we have done it already. Uh, but still, this is our immediate neighbor. This is a European Union uh, country, member of the Eurozone. And I'm absolutely sure that uh, we and the other members of, the, uh, of the, the European Union will make all the necessary steps in order to, to assure that Greece does not fall within the spiral of, of uh, inflation, Grexit, uh, and, and other uh, nightmare scenarios. You've mentioned specifically your concern about uh, Turkish stream. Uh, the Greece and the Kremlin have just signed a very large energy. You mentioned the MOUs. You're being very diplomatic, but we'll talk about Turkish stream a little bit. This impacts the southern corridor project mm -hmm. profoundly. You've spoken out about energy independence. Again, how do you message this internally uh, to make sure the energy union is, is a successful project? Well, first, uh, there was a very smart, very smart comment uh, some days ago on, on the internet. I don't know the uh, the author of it, uh, it was anonymous, but uh, it, was, it was said that all these streams, both South Stream, Turkey Stream, all the other streams, they, they, they look like a garden hose already flung around in the, in the Black Sea. Um, we, we need to realize that, uh, once again, how the energy map of, of Europe will look like depends on us. There is already infrastructure built. It goes via Ukraine, gas infrastructure for, for transit of gas. Why would we need to build additional infrastructure and spend billions on projects we really don't need? We need to buy gas from wherever we say, not wherever someone else dictates us. Uh, what is important as well is the diversification of, of sources. Well, the South Gas Corridor is exactly that. And not only that, the LNG terminals. One of the most important projects, actually, for, for uh, interconnectivity and, and uh, diversification of sources lies in Bulgaria. And it is the interconnector between Bulgaria and Greece. This is where, uh, this is where LNG gas coming from all over the world will will go through and be redirected both north and west. The good interconnectivity will give us the possibility to receive gas from, from west and north. So reversible connections will give us the, 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 the opportunity uh, to reduce the prices. Because right now, Bulgaria is one of the countries which pays the highest price for gas in Europe. 
I mean, from 260, it, the prices vary, of course, but it's from 260 to 400, which for, for us is a huge, huge problem, as you can imagine. Uh, so this monopoly position of, of Gazprom needs to, be, needs to be broken, and we all realize that. But we need, need to, to start calling the bluffs of Gazprom and, and, and saying, look, uh, it, it, is, it is on us. And all the threats that gas transit will be stopped uh, since 2019 uh, via Ukraine, this is, this is not how it works. There's a contract. Um, this contract need to be, needs to be respected. Um, we, if, if the Russian uh, company doesn't trust the transit via Ukraine, we are ready to buy gas on the Russian-Ukrainian border. The transit will be our concern. But there is infrastructure. Um, and, and to put it in, in other words, met metaphorically, if I have something, if I, if I had something I want to buy in the supermarket next door, why would I go 10 blocks away in order to buy the same thing on a higher price? There is already what we need, and now we need to interconnect and build the infrastructure which will allow us to diversify the sources. And the South Gas Corridor is actually uh, one of the crucial projects in, in that regard, plus the LNG terminals. And that's related to, to US gas, Canadian gas, Australian gas, uh, Israeli gas, um, Qatari gas, you name it. But, but this, is, this is what will give us more independence and more, more possibilities to, to have impact on the prices. One last question before I turn it over to our audience. There are some in the analytical community, I am one of them, that's very concerned about growing Russian influence in Bulgaria through uh, energy, we talked about that, through media, financial sector, uh, some of the bank, the, the state of Bulgarian banks and that. Could you speak to how that influence is making your job more challenging as you're trying to diversify energy and trying to speak about a, a Euro-Atlantic community that's strong and not divided? I think we'd welcome those, that important impact, because some suggest that although our focus may be on the Baltic states and Poland, and that's where our vulnerability, perhaps the vulnerability is Bulgaria, perhaps the vulnerability is Hungary. Your comment. Well, uh, first, the Bulgarian government uh, has clearly shown where it stands right now. Um, the, the fact that I'm here and I speak in this way, it is a clear sign uh, where we are and what do we want to see and achieve in the future. Uh, we speak a lot, a lot about the Russian propaganda. It exists uh, in Bulgaria. Historically, uh, we have been quite, uh, quite close to Russia. Uh, there are many, many, uh, many reasons for that. There's nothing bad in it if, if the situation was different. Uh, but when we, when we speak about how difficult it is, I, I have to say in the recent weeks, I had to explain why, uh, I mean, it was in the, in the framework of two weeks, I had to explain why a planned military training with 14 US tanks is not a threat to Russia. 14, one four. Uh, some of the political parties uh, in, in Bulgaria, the opposition ones, 
have created such a hysterical environment around this military training, and there are 78 of those planned for this year. If I have to explain one same thing, thing every single time, I don't know, uh, th this will be a little bit too much. Uh, it is clear what we have decided in Wales. It is clear that we have created our instruments to implement those decisions. It is clear that every single year we have military trainings, but now those military trainings every single time are used to uh, create hysterical environment and to somehow create the opinion that we are preparing for war or something very, very um, dangerous. But no one asked me the question, Mr. Minister, how do you take care of the national security when, when Russia announced the 40 ballistic nuclear missiles uh, and when, when Russia announced that it's going to um, allocate uh, heavy weaponry in, in Crimea, in the Crimean Peninsula? No one asked me that. But all of a sudden, a military training, which will last for a certain amount of time and everything will, will be over, uh, with 14 tanks, caused a huge, huge hysterical uh, response on the, on the part of the opposition. I have to say here, probably we're not doing a good uh, job at preventing such things and, and realizing that every single bit of, of something that is going on could be used against us and actually blown out of proportion uh, with, with, the, um, with the appropriate lies a lot could be achieved. And we, we have seen a lot of those lies uh, in, in the, recent, the recent more than a year already. Um, so here, it is, it is our common challenge. It's not only a challenge of the Bulgarian government. It is a European challenge. It is a transatlantic challenge. Absolutely. Uh, with the uh, minister's permission, what I'd like to do is take a few questions, bundle them together, sure. uh, and then I'll let you have the wrap-up where I have two questions here. We'll just work across the room. So if the microphone, Anna, could come here, please. Anna. And if you could please um, introduce yourself Anna. and your affiliation. Anna. And uh, if you, do you want a pen? Yes, thank you. Uh, <laughs> please, thank you. Hi. Um, my name is Dr. Donna Wells. I'm a mathematician. I make predictive math models. Right now, there's a debate on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, targeted bilateral trade versus group-to-group -group trade. I am a big fan of targeted bilateral trade. Um, can you talk about that dynamic? Thank you. That's a very specific question. <laughs> very I'll let you think on that one a little bit. Yes, sir. Uh, my name is Yusuf Babunle. I'm with the uh, Azerbaijan Informa State Information Agency. Uh, first question is, uh, uh, President Plevmaliev and uh, President Aliyev paid uh, official visits to each other's country. Uh, in March and April, uh, respectively. How would you rate uh, the Bulgarian-Azeri relations uh, overall? And my second question has to do with uh, points you addressed uh, in your speech, uh, primarily uh, the dependency of Bulgaria and other countries on a single supplier of gas. I understand Bulgaria gets as much as 88% from a single supplier and uh, Bulgaria signed an agreement with Azerbaijan to buy uh, up to one billion cubic meters of gas and uh, get it from through the uh, interconnector you are talking about, uh, through Greece, uh, Bulgaria interconnector. Uh, how much independence will it give to uh, Bulgaria? Uh, uh, the economic independence plus independence to renegotiate its prices with uh, Gazprom. And finally, uh, bear with me, uh, the last question. Uh, 
A lot of people believe that Nabucco did not happen because of the lack of the commitment on part of the European Union. Uh, does Bulgaria uh, want to promote West Nabucco as part of uh, its strategy because it would not only uh, have Bulgaria as a buyer, but it will become a transit country? Uh, thank you. Thank you. We'll take a question from right there, and then we'll pass the microphone back. So right there, and then right behind. Uh, my name is Ambassador Robert Beecroft. I worked with your government, Minister Passi, when you were the chair of the OSCE. Uh, I was the ambassador for the OSCE in Bosnia. And my question is a neighborhood question. How much attention are you paying to the difficulties in Bosnia and Herzegovina right now? And can Bulgaria continue to play a positive role in dealing with that situation? Thank you. I would just add to, to points to, to Bob's question, which uh, you certainly you and the Minister Lavrov got into a little conversation about Skopje. <laughs> so I wonder if you might want to add that to the neighborhood in Bosnia. Yes, sir, we'll go right back there, and I'll continue on across. No more three-part questions. We'll have to take just yeah. one question. Meto Kloski, United Macedonian Diaspora. Uh, to add on to that and to, to Skopje or uh, Macedonia, you recently visited Macedonia. And so if you could just build on perhaps, you know, the leadership Bulgaria is taking on Macedonia's NATO and EU uh, membership and maybe elaborate on this Bulgaria-Macedonia agreement uh, that you've proposed. Great. Now we're going to start coming over to the middle section here. I see the two questions, one in the back, one in the front. Hi, uh, Hugh Phillips. <clears throat> I liked what you said about Russia, um, and I wanted to know if you ever find it difficult to criticize the social contract there when, like she mentioned, there were some issues with the financial system in uh, Bulgaria, a particular corporate commercial bank, and some of the money movement around that, and the year it took to get rid of the central bank governor and the uh, institutional questions raised. Thank you. I think we had one colleague right in the middle there. Shrum, thank you. Uh, thank you. Um, my name is Martin Nunov. I am from the United Macedonian Diaspora as well. Um, so I was actually curious to hear, uh, this is a question that kind of sums up um, the two previous questions, but I was wondering to hear um, about your economic, political, and security outlook of the Balkan uh, Peninsula, of the Balkan region. Um, I mean, we have Bosnia and Herzegovina classified as a hybrid regime. Uh, Macedonia being declassified as a hybrid regime, um, you know, Kosovo being a semi-consolidated um, regime, and research or, or scholarship shows that actually, you know, violence and some, um, you know, and actually civil wars, um, there's a, you know, happen most of the time in actually hybrid regimes or semi-consolidated authoritarian regimes when countries deteriorated uh, in terms of democracy. So yeah, how is your economic, political, and security outlook, especially for the Balkan region. Thank you. Spencer, I think we need to have you back for a Balkan seminar. Sean, we're going to have uh, one, one, there's one hand back here, and then I'll hit this corner here, and you are going to have to do some fire rapid answers. That's all I can say. Yes, I'll sir, please. Thank you for your patience. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Minister. I'm Albert Nahas from Chenier Energy. Uh, there is now a United States gas available uh, cheaper than any competitive pipeline gas in, in Europe, including from the East. Um, when do you think Bulgaria would be ready to sign an agreement with a U.S. company? <laughs> that, was a, that was a thumbs up right there. I, do, I, you, do you have the text? <laughs> the We'd like to negotiate it here. <laughs> Trump, I think we have, a, we have two right here in that wedge. Yes, sir. Thank you. Hi. Uh, isn't it a little bit 
sort of disingenuous to, to talk about the importance of uh, transatlantic cooperation, especially uh, economic cooperation, uh, when Bulgaria has repeatedly uh, rebuffed, refused, and obstructed U.S. investors' attempts to engage in a cooperative and collaborative dialogue uh, with the government regarding the illegalities that, that sort of preceded uh, the collapse of KTB. Um, and along those same lines, uh, you seem intent on, on holding Russia to account uh, for its actions, uh, specifically saying, I think, you know, Russia needs to be sanctioned and, and continue to be sanctioned uh, for its illegal actions uh, with regard to the annexation of Crimea. Uh, at the same time, the Bulgarian government takes the position that it is not accountable uh, for the illegal actions of, of certain members of its own government, again, with regard to uh, sort of the events that led to the collapse of KTB. So it seems like the message that, that Bulgaria is sending is that we're all for cooperation and international accountability when it suits Bulgaria's purposes, uh, but we are not for sort of cooperating with foreign investors when it relates to illegalities uh, undertaken by members of the Bulgarian government. Thank you. If you could just pass the microphone to the colleague right in front of you, please. Thank you. Yeah, I like that name. Thank you. Hi. Dave Nelson with GE. Um, thank you for your comments and, and your, your remarks. You suggested that a uh, variety of sources of, of gas is, is sort of a geopolitical key. Certainly Sabine Pass is one option that you should be looking at. but. Um, what about the, the potential for, the G, for Europe to develop its own shale gas resources? Do you really see that as being something that they'll move forward on despite setbacks that we've seen in the UK and other places lately? Thank you. Certainly the significant protests right. that you had in Bulgaria. <laughs> so the task is respond in about three minutes if everyone would give me a little indulgence into your lunch hour. Uh, Mr. Minister, you can take the floor and wrap Thank it up. Thank you very much. Great questions. Well, Thank you all. Great questions indeed. And uh, I'm really happy that uh, we can, we can um, converse on that. A lot of them are related, so I'll try to connect them. Um, so targeted bilateral trade versus uh, other type of trade. Well, you know, that, that's a very specific question, as was already mentioned. Uh, both of them have, have their advantages, but I'm absolutely convinced that uh, here when we, when we speak about uh, TTIP, uh, it, it has not only economic implications, it's... Uh, okay, right. Uh, well, I'm, I'm afraid I'll probably, I'm, I'm, I'm not the, the, the most, uh, let's say, uh, competent uh, person to, to answer this, this question. Um, and uh, what, what I wanted to, to convey as a message was, um, when, when we speak about, uh, about a little bit more global uh, trade agreements, in, in our case, uh, and especially in, in the case of TTIP, um, it is a political, it has its political significance as well as its economic impact. Um, and uh, it, is, it is clear that targeted bilateral trade could still continue to, to exist within the framework of, of the whole um, the whole trade um, agreements that, that are prepared uh, in this very moment. So I, I don't see uh, uh, an impediment for, for both to be, uh, to be on the table 
and to be developed simultaneously. Um, then, the Bulgarian-Azeri relations. Uh, in this very moment, they're, they're really uh, good. Um, the Azeri president was, um, half a year ago, he was in, in Sofia, if I'm not mistaken, uh, with the half, half of the government. Um, as you mentioned, we have signed, um, we have signed a, uh, an agreement about uh, delivery of um, 1.5 BCM of, of Azeri gas when the South Gas Corridor um, is, is constructed. Uh, of course, we are looking forward to um, trying to expand that because uh, someone mentioned a, a, a transit country. Um, and, and, and Nabucco, yes, of course. If, if Nabucco is, uh, is an option, of course we will advocate for it. Uh, but this needs to be coordinated with, with all the other European Union countries and, and see, see how, again, together we can, we can somehow um, create the, the energy map of, uh, of the European Union uh, so that everyone agrees that those are the right, the right moves. If the Bulgaria-Greece interconnector is in place, Bulgaria will be still a transit country. Of course, uh, we, we need to, to expand it. Of course, we need to, to work on it uh, because um, the, the LNG terminals will provide more and more uh, possibilities for, for gas transit. Um, and this is where we, we are actually trying to, to aim at. Um, how much independence it will assure us? All the independence in the world. That, that's exactly what we need in order to modify the prices, in order to have the leverage on where, where from gas will arrive to Bulgaria, and not only to Bulgaria, but in the whole region. Uh, because from, uh, if we are interconnected enough, gas from Spain can arrive to, to Bulgaria. Gas from Germany can arrive to, to Bulgaria, if it is on the right price. That's what we need. Um, so th this is this is the, the whole idea to, to get out of the of this of this type of dependence. But it's not only our dependence. You rightly mentioned uh, we we are almost we're ninety percent, even more than ninety percent, dependent on, on Russian gas, right? On Russian gas right now, uh, and that's not normal. Uh, how much attention do we pay to Bosnia and Herzegovina, and uh, especially when it comes to the to the Balkans? Well, one of the priorities uh, in this very moment of our, uh, of our foreign policy is to uh, try and help in any possible manner uh, to the Western Balkan, Balkan countries. Uh, European Union will never be complete without them being part of it. Um, and that is why um, every type, every type of, of help, both in terms of um, financial support through the development programs or uh, expertise which we can provide to share our experience, our transition experience, which is, which is quite significant. We've done a lot of things well. We've done probably more, not in the best way, but uh, smart people learn from the mistakes of the others, right? So uh, we, can, we can provide even, even that in order to, uh, um, to, to uh, prevent our neighbors and friends from, from committing the same mistakes. Um, anyway, um, all this is valid for, for Serbia, for Bosnia. Uh, recently, we had a government-to-government -government session with, uh, with our Romanian friends, and we have formed the so-called 
uh, Krajova group, uh, where the Serbian prime minister was invited in order for us as, as three countries, both uh, two of them, members of the European Union and Serbia, which aspires to be one, uh, to be able to find uh, all the common grounds and all the, the possible ways to push the process of, European, uh, of the Serbian European integration as fast as possible uh, forward. So, so this is uh, this is the philosophy of it, and we we are trying to um, to of course in the framework of the the process for uh, cooperation of southeastern Europe, where we just assumed the, the the chairmanship in office. Also, in that framework, we are trying to set priorities which are important for the region, which will help each one of the countries uh, which are candidates for uh, for European membership to uh, to walk the path quicker. Uh, it is clear that the European Commission has um, you know, excluded the, the enlargement, the European enlargement uh, from the mandate of this Commission, but uh, that doesn't mean that we need to uh, just um, abandon the process, quite on the opposite. In order to maintain the enthusiasm for reform, we need to be more often there. We need to be more often in Belgrade, in Sarajevo, in Skopje, in, in Tirana, uh, everywhere, uh, I would include here uh, Moldova as well, for example, and, and Ukraine, of course, and, and, and Georgia. Uh, all, all these uh, friends of ours who aspire to, to European Union membership, we need to visit them as often as possible and, and give them all the possible support in order to, to transform and reform their institutions uh, to, to the maximum uh, extent um, and, and, and bring them closer to, to the European uh, standards. Um, the Bulgarian-Macedonian uh, uh, agreement and the, the and my exchange with, with Minister Lavrov, well, you know, I'm, I'm not very comfortable, on the last point, I'm not very comfortable for someone else, um, alien to the region, to um, impose a role on Bulgaria and to somehow assume what uh, Bulgaria or Albania or someone else will do. Uh, that is why uh, we have initiated exactly in the framework of this, this process for cooperation in Southeastern Europe, uh, we will uh, try to negotiate and initiate uh, a declaration uh, which um, um, tends to guarantee and reaffirm the uh, territorial integrity and the, the untouchability of the borders in the region once again, so that we know uh, that no speculations from elsewhere could drive us um, or, or uh, deviate us from, from what we have as goals, both European Union countries and uh, aspiring, um, uh, aspiring countries for, for membership in the, in the European Union. Um, the Bulgarian, Macedonia, the Bulgarian uh, and, uh, agreement with the Republic of Macedonia, well, we are we're talking all the time. There are rounds of conversations. Um, I have to say this is, this is a little bit um, it, it's, it's a stagnant process, unfortunately, for years. Um, and in the last year, since uh, I'm in office, um, we, we tried to somehow revive this process. And around the recent events, uh, there was quite an exchange. And I think there's a, there's a goodwill formed uh, within, within the, the, the government in, in Skopje to finally solve this and, and, and move on. We have agreed that the, declara the Declaration of 1999 needs to transform into, uh, into an agreement. That is it, it's simple as that. 
But there are always some, uh, some moments there which are keeping us from, from signing it. But the last visit to, to uh, uh, the Republic of Macedonia, to, to Skopje in, in, in uh, general, I, I think with that, there was, that gave a little bit of, a, of an impulse uh, to move this, this process forward. Uh, so right now we are negotiating the, date, negotiating the dates for the next meeting of the working groups, the expertise, and, and uh, we'll, we'll of course do all our best in order to uh, sign this because the, the good neighborly relations are part of the European integration process anyway. Um, we have all the best will to, um, to be one of those countries which help the Republic of Macedonia to integrate in the, in the fastest possible manner. Uh, we're very close, uh, close countries and, and, and friends. Just the recent years have been a little bit difficult for us, and I think that uh, right now we have the potential to uh, to move this process forward. Of course, for for Skopje is uh, is important to find a solution to um, to to this stagnant situation inside the country, internal political situation, and close the gap between uh, between the dissatisfaction of the of the citizens or Part of this great part of the society, and and the practices of, of the government, um, so reforms are needed, and and uh, we know what kind of reforms. They know what kind of reforms through the the efforts of Commissioner Hahn and uh, and the so-called quintet, the, the ambassadors in, in in Skopje, which are deeply engaged in, in in this process. We we're trying to to convey messages all the time. We're trying to to help. Um, and I am really hopeful that uh, certain very specific steps will be will be taken soon. Um, but uh, we have a very good uh, good cooperation in, in this moment. I hope it will result in a, at least in, in signing the, the agreement. Uh, well, the political and and the economic developments in, in the Balkans. Well, you know this, these are. Um, these are challenges which we all have faced throughout the time. I mean, uh, very, very often, if you if you go back uh, in time, Bulgaria was was in a similar situation as um, uh, as some of the Western Balkan countries are uh, in this very moment. Um, other countries uh, of the new enlargement wave, let's put, they were in the same situation, but. It takes will. It takes political will. It takes uh, the the desire for reform and really joining uh, the the European Union and democratizing the institutions and doing heavy heavy choices. The reforms are never easy. They are they are unpopular. Uh, they um, create social um, social dissatisfaction in certain part of the society. Everyone needs to know that. But still, the politicians uh, need to take that risk and explain very well why they're doing what they're doing uh, and, uh, and just, just move on. Uh, I think in some of the countries, that, uh, that will is very strong. Uh, not going to, to uh, mention names, but there is, there is will. In others, less because of different reasons. And uh, of course, when it comes to Bosnia and Herzegovina, for example, the, the German uh, British initiative was a good thing, but we are, but we see now that it has been stalled for a while. So we're trying to, to push those those processes further on. Um, on KTB, and uh, well, let this be the last uh, right. last question. I'm recalling everyone. Uh, because your, that, your time is so valuable. As there, well. there were there were some uh, some questions there. I didn't really 
um, understand um, how the Bulgarian government has impeded the, um, the, the, the access of, of uh, the American embassy to, to the process. Actually, that's, um, that's something that we, we were most collaborative on. Um, we have very good relations with the U.S. Embassy. Any type of information that has been uh, requested from us on that particular case, because we know how sensitive this, uh, this issue is, we have provided it. Uh, we have paid uh, 4 billion leva uh, to the people who had, uh, who had guaranteed deposits in, in the bank. Uh, of course, if, um, if you ask me, uh, the, the process for determining the, the people responsible for the collapse of KTB needs to be quicker. Responsibles need to be brought to justice, and we are actually fighting, fighting for that. Uh, we are trying to change the, uh, and, and, and amend um, uh, the, 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 the judicial system in this very, very moment. Uh, as you probably know, because you're well, well aware of, of the situation, uh, we're trying to amend the constitution even in order to bring a change to the judicial system and you know what kind of resistance there is on, on the other side. Sir, I'm so Well, look, um, I, I don't think anything is determined in this very moment. Investigations need to be to be conducted and and uh, basically um, finished in order in order to really establish whether there were government officials or or uh, officials of the central bank who, who are also responsible. So that's that's clear, and and that is in in the process of of, of being done. This is not an easy investigation, and uh, it, will, it will take time. Uh, there's, there's all the will in the world, and if you ask me, uh, and I, if I could uh, speed it up, I would, but first, that's not my domain, uh, really, and, and second, uh, I'm not really uh, sure um, how, um, how quick this, this process will go, because there's a lot, um, there's a lot to investigate in, in this case. And we, we need to be sure that whenever um, we take a, uh, whenever there's a final result, it's really final, and that that the responsible could be could be brought to justice in that in that very moment. There, there's the will for that. I can I can assure you about this, but it's quite a quite a delicate uh, quite a delicate issue. And uh, I wish the Minister of Finance was around. <laughs> probably, well, we'll have him next. Probably time. for the first time in my <laughs> life, but. Uh, <laughs> No, he's very tough. That's why I'm saying this. Uh, and and he is um, he is personally engaged in that. Um, now you know that uh, there's a new governor of the central bank, and there will be possibilities to unravel this uh, and untie this knot, probably quicker. Mr. Minister, you've given us a comprehensive set of remarks. You took nine rapid-fire questions. I added three more, and we've held you up. But thank you for the, uh, the wonderful questions from the audience and your generosity of time in providing us such great remarks. Please join me in thanking the minister.